Today we come to the end of our study in Peter's first epistle, as found in the New Testament. I've mentioned this before as we've gone through the epistles, but it may be that sometimes when we read the epistles, we see the opening verses as unnecessarily flowery, just sort of an extended greeting, and then the closing verses as sort of a hurried attempt to wrap everything up, to bring it to a close. And so oftentimes I think we see the beginning of an epistle and the ending as sort of not that important. The image that comes to mind is people ignoring the opening credits of a movie, and then as soon as the closing credits start rolling, they're out of the theater. Um, We take such a view of the epistles at our own peril. I would remind you that the letters are to be taken as a whole, and not just bits and pieces that are put together. There is, in fact, an organic unity to the letter and an organic connection between what is at the beginning and what is at the end. In a letter that deals with suffering righteous, those who suffer unjustly, the last verses of this letter are, in my opinion, invaluable. Without the last eight or nine verses of this letter, the entire message is changed. To review what we looked at last week, in verses 6 through 11, there were three primary themes that we focused on. The first is the situation of Peter's audience, us as well. Uh, throughout the letter, he has written about the people suffering at the hands of others. But now, in this last part of the letter, Peter points to someone who is behind that human behavior. And when he says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. As I mentioned last week, the word for devil is diabolos, which in its original meaning means someone who slanders, um, which really fits in with what Peter has been saying in this letter, those who are slandered for doing good. Um, there's someone behind that, and that is the devil. A roaring lion, the image of it, evokes fear. And I think this is what Peter has in mind as he writes this. We've already been told that we are to fear God, and by implication, we are not to fear anyone else. But the roaring lion that is the devil seeks to create fear, seeks to intimidate us, either directly or indirectly. There is someone behind the unjust suffering. And as he points out in verse number nine, it's just not just the people to whom he is writing. You know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. The second theme we looked at was the character of God. If all we had was Peter writing about the fact that the devil is roaring, you know, running around roaring, seeking to devour us, we might lose hope. But he tells us of the character of God. And he does so along two lines that are very much in line with what we find in the Old Testament. God who is the mighty warrior and God who is merciful. So in verse number 6, we read of God's mighty hand. He will lift you up. In verse number 10, he himself will restore you, make you strong, firm and steadfast. In verse number 11, to him be the power forever and ever. That is God the mighty warrior. God is merciful. In verse 7, he cares for you. Verse 10, he is the God of all grace. Verse number 10, also, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So we saw last week in the Old Testament, God as the mighty warrior is seen 
uh, in a series of three aspects. First of all, it is God who tells Israel when they should go to battle and who it is they should fight. Um, Israel doesn't go to battle on its own initiative. It is God who directs them. Then secondly, in the midst of the battle, God is present with them. And so, as we see in the Psalms, they don't need more potent weapons. They don't need better defenses. They don't need superior numbers. God is with them. As David wrote in Psalm 30, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Then after the battle has been engaged and the victory has been won, praise is given to God. When Israel is obedient and wins the battle, it is because of the power of God. And I would argue that in many ways, Peter follows this similar pattern. We talked about that last week. What we do find in verses 6 through 11 is that there are two different ways we can look at the world. It's the same reality, but understood in two different ways. And the question is, what do you see? What do you know? On the one hand, you might see the world as only a place full of distress and suffering and humiliation. On the other hand, we don't deny these realities, but we don't see them as the final story, as the complete story. In fact, it is God's character and God's power and God's purpose that is what dictates and what defines the story and not our suffering. From this perspective, no empire, whether it be the Roman Empire or any other, not even the devil has ultimate power. It is God who does. And thus, verse number 11, that all power is given to him. God will restore, will strengthen, will empower, will secure his people. It is God who will vindicate, exalt, and gather his people into his unending glory. The third thing we looked at was the expected response, that is, of his readers, of those of us who are God's people. It is only people who have embraced this way of knowing, to know that suffering doesn't tell the whole story, that God, in fact, is the one who is all-powerful, who can, who can respond as Peter tells us. We are, verse number six, to accept our status. Verse number seven, to cast our anxiety on him. Verse eight, we are to remain vigilant and self-controlled. We are to stay alert and we are to resist the devil. These in themselves could provide fuel for a series of sermons. But I'm struck by the fact that this is very similar to what we find in many of Paul's letters. Sort of at the end, uh, almost a, a series of staccato imperatives of do this, do this, do this, as though he's sort of been taking his time and then suddenly he's coming to the end and he's got to wrap it up and so he's got to jam everything in that he can. Um, it's much, much more than that. What it boils down to this is that the devil does not have ultimate power, only God does. We may suffer calamity at the hands of oppressors, not because God is not paying attention, not because God does not care, not because it is outside his redemptive purpose. For, Paul, uh, for Peter, God's restoration comes through suffering, not from it. We like to think of God's power as delivering us from suffering. Peter sees it as God's power is that which carries us through suffering. Today we come to the last three verses of 1 Peter. And look, if you would, as I read verses 12, 13, and 14. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. 
Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. Her greetings. Uh, so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. There's a list of things that we can consider from this. I think I've got a list of eight or nine. But we put them into three categories. First of all, the people who are mentioned. Secondly, the nature of this letter. I mean, he talks about the letter here at the end. And finally, the sign of love and peace. First, the persons who are mentioned. Uh, Peter is joined in this letter. Well, he closes it mentioning three different names. Two are the names of individuals. The first is Silas, who may be the same person mentioned in Acts chapter 15. He was one of the two chosen by the council in Jerusalem to take the letter that they had written and to carry it to the Gentile churches. The letter states this. This is from Acts 15. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. Sometime later in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas, who had already done one journey, are going to do a second one, but they have such a sharp disagreement that they go their separate ways. Barnabas takes John Mark and Paul takes Silas with him. Silas is mentioned at the beginning of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, along with Paul and Timothy. Here, Peter writes of him as the one who helped Peter write this letter. And to what extent he helped, uh, Peter doesn't tell us. Is he the scribe or is he the one who contributed ideas? We simply are not told. What he does tell the reader is that Silas is to be regarded as a faithful brother. Brother means he's part of the family which is important throughout the New Testament, but particularly in this letter. And he is faithful. He is trustworthy. Just a side note, there are those commentators who believe that Silas is the one who carried this letter and that uh, it was sent to the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and that Silas took the letter. But Peter does not tell us that directly. On the other hand, Peter may be saying that Silas is trustworthy uh, in his composing of the letter and his ability to represent Peter's thought faithfully. We're simply not told. I do find it important that Silas and Mark are mentioned by name because we've been studying First Peter. We've been talking about Peter. We might imagine that Peter is doing all the work and others are mentioned as well. The second name mentioned is Mark and the name is familiar enough. Um, we don't know if this is the same person who wrote the Gospel of Mark, um, who is known as John Mark. The name Marcus was common enough in the Roman world. Um, if it is to be taken literally, he may in fact have been the son of Peter. We do know that Peter had a wife, uh, Mark chapter 1, when his mother-in-law has a fever, Jesus heals her. In 1 Corinthians 9, when Paul says, listen, Paul, uh, Peter takes his wife with him, do I not have the same right? So it could be taken literally or it could be taken figuratively. Someone that Peter brought to faith, someone he discipled, someone he mentored. In any case, Mark sends his greetings in this letter as well. The third name is Babylon. Verse number 13, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. There are two assumptions I think we can agree on. First of all, Babylon is not meant literally but represents something else, another city, another population center, another cultural center. The second thing I think we can agree on is this is the place of the origin of this letter. 
just as Silas and Mark are with Peter as he writes this letter, uh, she who is in Babylon, this, this is where he is, they, she sends her greetings as well. Uh, who is the she? I think it's the church. It's, I don't think it's his wife or a woman in the church. Um, it is the church in Babylon. The big question is, what does Babylon refer to? I think this colors how we view the rest of the letter. Um, It reminds me of the movie Sixth Sense, where at the end of the movie, you're given a piece of information that once you have that piece of information, then you go back and you think through and you're like, ah, that's what was going on. I think Peter is doing the same thing here by telling us that he is writing from Babylon. Many commentators, in fact, all that I found, believe that Babylon refers to Rome. This is where Peter is said to have been martyred. I don't agree. I don't think that's what Peter's talking about at all. Babylon is dealt with symbolically at length in the book of Revelation, which was written about the same time as 1 Peter. In Revelation 16:19, we find the first mention of Babylon. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. In chapter 17, this title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the Mother of Prostitutes, and the Abominations of the Earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk on the blood of the saints and the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. We studied the book of Revelation some seven years ago, and I can't possibly summarize it all at this point, but I will mention certain facts that are pertinent to our study here. First of all, the book of Revelation opens with the statement, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, what must soon take place. Thus, we are looking at something that took place in the first century. It took place shortly after John wrote it. Secondly, the language of the book of Revelation is that of the Old Testament. I've mentioned this before in various Bible studies. Genesis is the most New Testament of the Old Testament books, and Revelation is the most Old Testament of the New Testament books. In a sense, they sort of tie everything together. The language of Revelation is not of the modern newspaper or current events. It is the language of the Old Testament. The third thing is the language of the Old Testament is specifically about the penalties for breaking the covenant. If you read what God promised would happen to Israel if they obeyed and if they disobeyed, if you look at that language from Deuteronomy and other passages, you will find it replicated in the book of Revelation. And the last thing I think is pertinent is the end of the old covenant needed to be explained. It would, in fact, seem to many to be the end of the world. This is something that we as non-first century Christians, I think, failed to appreciate. In 70 AD, Jerusalem and the temple, which represented the presence of God, were completely destroyed. The book of Revelation is written before this event to prepare believers for that cataclysmic event, to explain why it was happening, to show that it was not the end of God's dealing with humanity, and to demonstrate that God could and did keep his promises. And not only the good promises, but the promises that if we fail to obey, how he will respond.
the penalties for breaking the covenant. We saw in our study of the book of Jeremiah that the breaking of the covenant is spoken of in terms of adultery. God's people being unfaithful to him, joining themselves to other idols. And so in Revelation, we should not be surprised that Babylon the Great is referred to as the mother of prostitutes. Babylon is Jerusalem. This is where Peter is when he writes this letter. Why do I think this is such a big deal? How does it color the rest of the book? How does Jerusalem fit in with the theme of righteous suffering? From Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zachariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. Jerusalem, in many ways, is the apex, it's the epitome of what we see in terms of the suffering righteous. Not as those who are suffering, but as though Jerusalem causes people to suffer. It is in Jerusalem that Jesus is arrested and put on trial and then taken outside the city and he is crucified. It is in Jerusalem that Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is put to death. A great persecution fell on the church beginning at Jerusalem and many of the believers moved away. James, the apostle, is beheaded, becoming the first apostle to be martyred. Peter is writing this letter from the place that exemplifies unjust suffering. It was in Jerusalem that so many suffered, that so many were put to death, persecuted, and not just since the time of Jesus, but the Old Testament, the times of the prophets. To me, this puts Peter's letter in a different light. That is to say, this is not some theoretical exercise on his part. He's not sort of kicking back and writing to people who are going to suffer and somehow he's trying to comfort them. He's writing from the headquarters of unjust suffering, from the place where God's people have been suffering for centuries. Those who have the truth are being put to death, are being persecuted by those who also claim to have God's truth. Well, why not just say that? Why not just say Jerusalem and why put Babylon I can only speculate, which is always dangerous. But Jerusalem could no longer be known as a place of peace, a place of Salem, of Shalom. It's much closer to that Old Testament entity that was responsible for destroying the first temple, which in turn itself was destroyed. When Peter writes of unjust suffering from the place of persecution, it means that he knows what he's talking about. I also think, by the way, if he had said, I'm writing from Jerusalem, people would say, oh, well, then that's, that's a very 
specific situation that's only true of them and okay that's them and it doesn't really apply to others by using a symbol a symbolic name I think Peter allows the doors to be thrown open for us to see persecution as happening in other places you see the people to whom Peter is writing Jerusalem doesn't mean that much to them they have not been that affected by persecution their persecution will come from Rome now, if Peter had said, well, I'm writing you from Jerusalem, they might have said, well, your situation doesn't match ours. But it was in the first century, particularly after 70 AD, that Rome came to be known as the New Babylon. And now what Peter writes begins to connect with people that as he and other Christians were persecuted in Jerusalem, so the people here in Asia will be persecuted by Rome. That's the first part. The second part is the letter itself. As he closes the letter, he tells us two things about the letter. First of all, its nature. I have written to you briefly. Um, again, this is a statement that should not be taken literally. And just for comparison, this letter has over 1,800 words in it. The average length for a letter in those days was 87 words. Uh, briefly is not the word I would use when I would speak of Peter's letter. On the other hand, in comparison to Paul's letters, uh, Romans and 1 Corinthians are four times longer than 1 Peter. Um, he might say, yes, this is a brief letter. I think more than that, Peter wants us to know he could have written much, much more on the matter of suffering, on persecution. But he's just written this out briefly. But I don't think we should fixate on that. Rather, we should look at its purpose. And this is the second thing he tells us about the letter. He's writing, encouraging you and testifying. Encouraging, I think, is sort of a weak word uh, due to its place in our culture. It's along the lines of suggesting. If I encourage you, it's like suggesting. It, it doesn't really have any force behind it. In reality, the word encourage has appeared earlier in this letter. Chapter 2, verse 11. There it's translated as urge. And here in chapter 5, verse 1, translated as appeal. Well, coming near the end of the letter, which has uh, so many imperatives, I think encouraging has, it packs more punch than we would imagine. He's telling them what to do. And he's encouraging them to stand fast in the faith. More on this in a bit. He is encouraging and he is testifying. The English Standard Version has declaring. I think more important than testifying or declaring is what is being declared or what is being testified to. And here it is, that this is the true grace of God. What does that mean? What is the this that is the true grace of God? I would say it's the entire letter. It's everything that he has written thus far. Grace has been found throughout this letter. It refers to God's favor, God's honor. It refers to the substance of salvation. From the second verse of this book, grace and peace be yours in abundance. To verse number 10 of chapter 1, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. And in chapter 4, verse 10, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering 
God's grace in its various forms. Chapter 5, verse 5, in quoting from Proverbs 3, which James does, did, by the way, in our uh, prayer of confession today, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then in verse number 10, the God of all grace. It is a summary of the liberating work of God in Christ on behalf of believers, including the fact that we have been given honorable status. The world humbles us, verse number 6. It wants to disrespect us, but it is God who gives us grace and the promise of vindication. In spite of the fact that we might be seen as aliens and strangers in the world, God's grace is true. Our suffering does not negate it. If anything, it confirms it. Because that is the true, because that is true, we have the imperative Stand fast in it. This, I think, is a summary of this entire book of what we are to do. We've seen this already. Peter does not want his readers to assimilate, to capitulate, to go back to the old way of living. But neither does he say that they are to passively submit. Remember that the opposite of submit is withdraw. Therefore, they are to engage. And here... By saying stand fast in it, I think he speaks of courageous resistance. Don't sort of go away. Don't assimilate, but stand in the grace of God. It's courageous resistance. The third thing is the sign of that resistance. Verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. In the ancient world, there were different reasons for a kiss of greeting. For example, if you hadn't seen a friend in a long time and you would see each other and you would kiss each other. But public kissing was a restricted practice. And it sort of defined who you were. You know, that people would only kiss people who were of their social class. It was demonstrative of inclusion, of kinship and of honor. You don't just kiss anybody, but those who are related to you, those who have a position of honor. Peter qualifies the kiss that he's talking about here as the kiss of love. And in doing so, he puts in summary form the whole of his teaching regarding relations in the community of faith, that is the church. Throughout this letter, as indeed throughout the New Testament, love has been put forward as the defining characteristic this is what defines us as God's people. This is how we are to behave. This is to be our disposition. Because we belong to a group, to a church, a body, a family. We are to favor others in the community. We are to look out for others in the community. We are to be committed to oneness in this group. If you think back throughout this letter, the family theme has come up time and time again. He's talked about new birth. He's talked about being newborn babies and children. He's spoken of God as our Father. Let me just read to you some verses. 1 Peter 1.3 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Chapter 2 verse 2 Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your faith. 
back to chapter 1, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Again in chapter 1, verse 22, have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply. Chapter 2, verse 17, show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. Chapter 3, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. And then we saw in verse number 9 of chapter 5, you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. All of these and more point to this closing admonition, greet one another with a kiss of love. The kiss of love renews, it strengthens, it recreates patterns of thinking and feeling. But the question may come up, what comes first, the act or the thinking or understanding? Rather than answer the question directly, I would suggest to you that if we wait and act until we understand, we may in fact never act. Because we never really fully understand and our actions always lack full understanding. It is in doing that we come to understand. It is in doing that we begin to have an appreciation and that we learn. I'm reminded again of a neighbor down the street, uh, Barbara Jo Hoshizaki, who was here when Woody's group sang. Um, Barbara Jo passed away unexpectedly about two, two and a half weeks ago. She's not only a neighbor, but she was my teacher. She was my professor. I took botany at L.A. City College. And I've told you this before, but I was, I was struck by the fact that at the beginning of the semester, she had us in the greenhouse and we were dividing plants and repotting and we were doing all these things that she told us what to do, but I, I didn't really, I didn't get it. I, yeah, I'll do what you tell me, but I don't understand this. But it was as time went on, we began to learn and are like, oh, that's why we did those things. It is by doing that later on we come to learn. I think that it is in doing that we come to learn what it means to have a brother and a sister. When we greet each other with a kiss of love. It is, in fact, embodied theology that I may not understand at the time. The reality is I may not fully understand until Jesus comes back. But I don't wait until I understand it to do it. I am to do as Peter says, and I am to greet each one with a kiss of love. Then we come to the last sentence in this letter. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. In this, Peter has come full circle. In chapter 1, verse 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance. In verse number 12, this is the true grace of God. And now we come to peace. Shalom, the outcome of God's redemptive work. The Old Testament prophets, Peter spoke about them in chapter 1, wrote of shalom as the fulfillment of God's promise. God's promise to restore all things to their created order. Peace, in a word, summarizes the new world that is being transformed from its fallen state into its redeemed state by the Creator God. Peace ultimately embraces every aspect of our existence, past, present, and future. And in a single word, God's plan for what Peter called 
and when he spoke to the Sanhedrin, to restore everything. That's what peace means. There's one last thing, the last part of the last sentence. You who are in Christ. Those whose existence, whose identity is determined by the crucified and risen Lord. He is the one who epitomized what Peter's been writing about for five chapters here. The suffering of the righteous one. Peter, who lives in Babylon, writes to those who are or who will suffer. And he tells them that they are to stand in courageous resistance together. As God's people. We do not, we are not to suffer alone. We are to do this together as God's people. And he writes this to encourage them and to declare to them, this is the grace of God. Between the Sunday school discussion and the morning service, Kathy and I were talking about suffering. Why is it that people, why is it that Christians today think that suffering is not part of who we are as human beings. I thought that was an interesting question. I think this letter says a lot to us today, because we imagine that suffering isn't part of who we are. But then I told Kathy, it's really strange that Peter would write this to people in the first century. People in the first century, their life was nothing but suffering. He's writing to people who are slaves. And he's telling them, oh, by the way, you're going to suffer. It's like, Hello, Peter. Here we are in the first century. We're slaves. We're suffering. But I think this is what was going on. They were brought out of darkness into light. They come out of paganism into the truth. And it so transforms their lives that they can't imagine that the old life is still there. I see the truth. Why am I still suffering? God has changed me. Why is there still suffering? The reality is we have embraced the truth, but we live in a world of lies. And when you live in a world of lies and you have the truth, you're not going to be right. And there, in fact, will be persecution. There will be suffering. Even without persecution, there is still suffering. But that's okay. These last verses tell us this isn't the whole story. This isn't the whole story. We are to stand firm in the faith. This is the grace of God. As we saw in chapter 4, what is the sign? What is the sign? It is the Spirit of God. God gives His Spirit to those who are suffering. For us, that seems so counterintuitive. For us, it's the people who don't suffer that, man, God really likes you. God is really blessing you. You don't have any difficulties. And Peter says, no, let's, let's look back at the Old Testament. Let's look at Jesus. Yes, this is the pattern. We will suffer unjustly, but it's not the whole story. One day we will be vindicated, perhaps not in this life, probably not in this life. One day we will stand with Christ because we are in Christ. This is the grace of God. Let's pray together.
Father living within where we do. It's tempting sometimes. The thought comes to mind that these New Testament people are sort of obsessed with the business of suffering. Um, They almost seem to enjoy it, to embrace it. And then we remember the words of Jesus, that if we were to follow him, we were to take up our cross. To be in Christ will involve suffering. Our problem is, for the most part, we have not suffered that much. This seems so foreign to us. But it was true of Peter and those to whom he was writing, and many of our brothers and sisters, even today in other parts of the world. May we affirm this. May we accept that this is true. And may we stand firm in it. Above all, may we see that we don't do this by ourselves. We are to stand together. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We're not in this alone. We are brothers and sisters. You are our Father. I thank you for Peter's first letter and what we've learned from it. May your spirit help us to recall these things from time to time. May we put them into practice. I thank you that we could gather to worship you on this day. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.